AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. So, Matt, I hear that you've got a story for us today talking something about a vulnerability against Docker. Yep, so it's actually a vulnerability against a family of different systems that use the same runtime underneath it. So Docker, Kubernetes, there's a couple others, but I think Docker and Kubernetes are the ones most people know about. Right. Uh, and the vulnerability is really in something called Run-C, which is the underlying technology for containerization that's used by both of those. And the vulnerability is basically a way for a bit of code running within a, a container mm -hmm. to get root outside the container, ah. which is a very bad thing. Whenever we hear about vulnerabilities um, in cloud technologies, the biggest fear I think always is, is can something escape the environment that it was intended to stay in? So the real problem is that there's a way for that code to reach out and overwrite that run C executable, which runs with elevated privileges. So obviously this is a problem. Uh, this has been patched. Uh, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Docker have all released patches. So if you are using Docker, uh, this is the time to patch. And really, the, the impact of this is that beforehand, the whole point of containerization would be not only to package up an entire system of, of parts and tools for something you've written code for and run it anywhere, but also there was this assumed separation between that container and the, the, the operating system outside of it. Right. And clearly this breaks that. And so with this one, that fear of, of that vulnerability allowing the escape out into the, into, in, in essence, the host OS is pretty scary. Now, I don't think anyone's really seen these attacks in the wild yet. Mm. Um, it's sort of a different attack approach than like somebody scanning the internet for net network vulnerability because you actually have to grab this code, bring it to your own system, and run it there. So um, you know, we'll keep an eye out. Uh, but in the short term, I think people, their best approach now is to patch. Hmm. OK. So, so the patch is available, but no, nothing in the wild has been seen so far. Not so. that we've heard of. That's always well, a good thing, right? Yeah. I guess, but I think we were talking before, how easy would it be to even know if this was actually right. uh, that your machine had been? Um, so yeah. in order to determine that your own machine has been yeah, compromised, yeah. you can take a look at that run C binary, which actually gets completely overwritten. It is possible to detect the abuse of this vulnerability because the run C binary gets overwritten on the host. So if anything changes on your system with run C that you're not expecting, you will know immediately. So is that the, is that the best way that you've got to sort of to tell? tell? I mean, it, the, the best way to do this, I think, would be for people who host repositories of Docker images and Kubernetes, et cetera. I'm using Docker as a shorthand here. Right. But anyone who hosts these sorts of containers is probably in the best position to review all of them, because they've got them all uploaded to the site for other people to download. And that's probably where you're going to get a compromised one unless someone is targeting you directly. Mm. So if you are someone who hosts these sorts of images, um, maybe you could do a little research project and, and figure out which ones are malicious and which ones are not. But you said some of the major players have already said that they've downloaded yes, the patches. So, that's correct. So you know that you're safe, like Google, as you said, yes. has patched their own. If you're hosting your uh, images, if you're hosting um, 
these containers on somebody else's platform, chances are they have been patched at this point. Right. If you're running them on internally on your on your own systems, that's where you should be yeah. taking pains to patch. Right. Yeah, I guess I guess that's the that's the, always the best advice here is just to ensure that your stuff is patched. Yeah. Well, if you're doing if you're running something that does uh, file system monitoring to check if anybody's changed critical files, right. yeah. adding run C to the list will give you some visibility as, as to when it's happening. But you may as well patch at that point, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. Uh, there is also a mitigating factor that the the namespace within the container and outside the container have to be identical, and that's not typically done. It's a misconfiguration. So it's also possible to reconfigure things to make yourself less vulnerable. In the meantime, if you can't patch, okay. there is a way to mitigate. Okay. Interesting. All right. I guess we got to keep an eye on this one then. Sure. So, you know, the best thing to do, and we say this all the time, is patch, 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 patch. Manny, I understand there's a new protocol that's being used in amplification attacks in DDoS. Yeah, so uh, CoAP or a constrained application protocol um, is basically a protocol that is being used f mostly for machine to machine. It, it's mostly being used in the, in the IoT space because it's extremely lightweight. So the, the protocol itself actually was formally approved back in 2014. So it's not an old protocol, it's a fairly new protocol. And I guess, like everything else, eventually the bad actors figure out that it's there mm -hmm. and that there's some way to take advantage of it. So from this story's perspective, we're seeing obviously an amplification attack. In this case, it seems like you've got a target population that will amplify your traffic for you to a certain degree. Nothing spectacular, but you know, nothing to sneeze at either. In essence, it's a, uh, an amplification factor of 34, which is, which is actually, it's a lot, but it's kind of mid-range. Yeah. It's yeah. actually mid-range. Right. Yeah. So it's not bad. So the, the, the stats that they gave you is basically you're getting a 720-byte response for a 21-byte request. Okay. So, you know, again, it's not, it's not on the huge side. It's somewhere, so, somewhere in the middle. So, but it's enough for it to be useful from an amplification sure. attack perspective. So what they end up doing with this is there's basically a request, uh, a get request for a URI of uh, slash dot well dash known slash core. And when you make that get request, what you get back is the device basically giving you its capabilities. Oh, yeah. So it's like a, the directory of possible things you can do with exactly. the device, and that can be a huge list. Exactly. The other thing that I thought was interesting was that, that the protocol itself did have some nice security capabilities built into it. So there is a piece of this that they talk about in security, which uh, they say uses uh, a default DTLS uh, parameter of an equivalent uh, 3072-bit RSA key. Oh. So, they're, so they've taken into, into consideration the security aspect of it for the communication that's actually happening between these devices. The problem is, is that, sure, you can shore that up. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is that it's still being abused from an amplification perspective, that's, which doesn't take yeah. into consideration that you've got your actual traffic being uh, encrypted. That's interesting. It's kind of like the problem that we've seen with DNSSEC, where DNSSEC responses are huge. Right. 
Uh, and if you if you want secure DNS, then yeah, it's a good way to go. But if you want huge reflection and amplification, that's Absolutely. also a good way to go. <laughs> right, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So even with all the security controls in place, you still have to worry about the the opportunity for uh, the protocol to be abused with this amplification attack. Most of the scanning so far, most of this protocol is being used in China on mobile devices. So right now, the protocol is being mostly used there. Um, but so a lot of the scanning is also sort of bleeding over into Brazil, Morocco, South Korea, and the US is somewhere in the top five on that list. So it's not that we are completely oblivious to this. Mm -hmm. We are seeing some of this scanning actually happening here uh, closer to home. But most of it, I'm, I'm talking about like 90-something percent of, of the, the scanning that they were uh, seeing here was actually in, in China. Wow. wow. Yeah. The one thing that they also mentioned with this protocol, and probably any protocol that you talk about on, on IoT devices, is also its, the, its nature of Today I run that scan, and I can pull. I can give you, you know, in essence, the list of IP addresses that this thing is that that I'm finding all the scanning on. Mm -hmm. And a week from now, if I run that scan again, the IP address range is completely shifted. Oh. So because these devices are so up down, you know, they're under IoT IoT devices. Yeah. The devices move around. So from an attacker perspective. It's a little more difficult to use this as your amplification attack method yeah. mm -hmm. because every single time you got to go out and scan first, scan first, then attack. Right, exactly. It's a good point. Yeah. That's a really interesting point. So hopefully we won't see it up on Craigslist that quickly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and also 36, you know, for somebody who's worked around DDoS for a while, it's not bad, but you know, it's not memcache. That one was I think that was like 500 to 1 or something like that. It was really, right. really scary. Um, and that kind of came and went. So maybe this one will also come and go yeah. <laughs> kind of quickly. Yeah. In order to make any use of this situation and get this bonus for your amplified uh, DDoS attacks, you have to always be scanning and updating your list of amplifiers. So hopefully that will make it more difficult for an attacker to use effectively um, in a DDoS attack. Karen, it seems like there's new research about the impact of federal security standards around personal devices like smartphones um, and the impact that it has on the workforce, which is increasingly more mobile engaged. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I thought, I thought this was kind of an interesting thing because in general, we do think of smartphones as kind of a, a suck on productivity time sometimes, you know, that people are doing things they shouldn't be doing. But in the name of the Snowden leaks and the federal government has banned smartphones from a lot of secure locations, what they've actually found is, is that people are losing productivity because these are the new cigarette breaks, are people actually leaving their workplace to be able to go out and check. They say there's 52 minutes lost every day from this effort, which is a significant part of a workday, 28% lost in overall productivity. And that also this is driving down employee satisfaction, all in the name of security, that they don't want cameras and things that you can record, of course, right. the, on these security issues. To me, this is always an issue we deal with. How do you balance the needs for security against just operational capabilities that you need to do in your business? So this whole idea of 
just creating a ban, you know, and we know that you have to deal with things on security, but security has an impact. It's never completely benign to, to adjust for security. So how do you adjust for this? I mean, they made a decision, but now what kind of enhanced security can you add to your smartphone, which there are things that are out there that would, that, that would disable recording or um, cameras and still enable people to be able to bring their smartphone into the workforce. You know, for me, it really was sort of eye-opening that there is this sort of issue out there that, that obviously a lot of companies today are dealing with. When I first read this and I saw that stat about 52 minutes, at first, I was like, I, what? I don't, how's that possible <laughs> mm -hmm. that 52 minutes is lost? And then I, you know, I realized the way that they were you know, looking at it, that somebody would have to take their cell phone and walk outside, or, or if they have their cell phone, they, they're not cell even allowed to bring yeah, it outside. It's in a locker. Right, yeah. so it's in a locker or their car, right? So they yeah. have to walk out there to go get it, to check their email, then you know, close and then walk back. But. Um, and that to me is just insane that, but, but if you look at it from the perspective of allowing the person to bring that phone in, mm. does that take into, into account the amount of time that somebody with their phone inside the, inside the company? How much time they would have wasted if they had the phone there? Right, well, if they have their phone, right. right. That's what most so, companies worry about. The impact to productivity by a necessary security function is something that's kind of interesting to explore. Is there a way to improve the productivity of, of the workforce without sacrificing security? Is there some sort of middle ground that can be reached? I thought it was kind of interesting that you know they do these you know all out bans as opposed to maybe thinking through this of how and maybe they'll have to um, you know embracing some additional security measures to obviously keep some government data and information safe. Mm -hmm. That's obviously important, especially post Snowden, but have a little bit of flexibility with their workforce. Mm. Well, let's, let's talk about what a smartphone is, really. I mean, it's, it's a device that has a camera and a microphone and a bunch of other sensors on it, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth. Yep. Um, and you know, we, we work in security. We realize these things can be compromised and turned into sensors to sense any one of yep. those things. Right. I totally understand where the government is coming from in banning them from sensitive work environments. I'm, tr I'm trying to come up with a way in my head that you would rectify the fact that yes, absolutely, you don't want to be have anyone have an opportunity to connect to a system, take a photograph of a sensitive document, any of the things that a smartphone can do um, with the fact that people want to have mobile devices in the workplace. Maybe there's a way you can provide them with something that gives them a limited access to the things that they need to do on a day-to-day -day basis. But again, I mean, they, I assume, have a desktop. Can they do some of those things on their desktop? Is it really that big of a deal? I mean, what's, what's the difference between, can I go and if I need to check my, well, personal email, let's not get started on that one. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I'm talking through this scenario yeah. and I'm coming up with the problems on my own. So yeah. maybe I need to do a little more thought on it. Well, but. I mean, it's, I mean it's, they're all valid points. I mean, you know, uh, the, the, and I think the problem from a, from a company perspective, as you said before, is, is how much can you trust on the protection at the device? Mm -hmm. We don't have full trust in these devices like we do the devices that we let you know, attach to our network. And so they're coming from the outside. 
that we don't own those devices, we're not enforcing the protection of those devices, but clearly those devices are, are running all so sorts of things that, you know, that, that from a security perspective, you certainly do not want. Well, interesting discussion. I think yeah. there's a lot to it, and it's probably, you know, it, we could probably sit here and talk about it for another hour or so, but, yeah. but I think it's, it's very interesting. Now, I'd yeah. like your proposal on my desk by uh, Friday, 5 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> okay, man. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. I have faith. <laughs> Thanks, Karen. Take a look at this week's internet weather. These are the top 10 most probed ports for the last week. Uh, in first place is 23TCP, that's Telnet. It's been there for a while. 443TCP uh, is SMB. 8545 is Ethereum, which is uh, kind of an interesting one to see near the top. Um, 22 TCP is SSH, 81 TCP is an alternate web port, usually related to IoT vulnerabilities. 53413, we thought it was gone and it is back. Uh, it came up from 64th place to 58th place this week, so we'll be taking a look at that one. Uh, 3389 TCP is remote desktop protocol, 80 ICMP is ping, 4043 TCP is uh, SSL, and 80 TCP is plain old HTTP. Taking a look at the most sources probing. Uh, 445 is in the top, followed by 23. 8080 TCP is in third place, and we actually have a closer look at that this week because I keep wondering what is on 8080 that's so important. 80 TCP is in fourth. 5900 TCP is up 22 slots. We'll take a look at that. That is VNC. Uh, 5555 is remote debug bridge on Android. 80ICMP again is ping. 81 TCP is alternate web. 22 TCP is SSH, and 53 UDP is DNS, which is up. 14 spots. 445 TCP, we've been tracking this one for forever, feels like, um, but that was only really about a year and a half ago that we had WannaCry, yep. and since then it really hasn't you know, gone too far around. You can see it's uh, cycling daily there, and we're peaking out around 80,000 uh, scan sources per hour. Wow. Uh, so scan sources on port 5683 UDP, that's co-op. Uh, and this is from an AT&T perspective, and despite what we've heard about the vast volumes of scanning over in China, it seems that we don't have a terrible amount of it here in the U.S. You can see a number of very concentrated spikes on a couple of dates here that come out around 300 scan sources per hour. That's the most we see, and uh, we can account for those. Those are actually a security company operating out of the U.S. that does regular internet-wide scans. Okay. Scan flows on port 53413 UDP. That's the Netis backdoor that we're so familiar with. We've seen it for a while now. Um, there was a significant increase in the last couple of days on this port, peaking out around 180 million scan sources per hour. It's, uh, yeah, somebody has rediscovered this and has decided to make it the effort, uh, the point of their scanning. Um, this is really a single source in a US cloud provider, so. So someone is probably looking to build a botnet scanning at this level. Um, so we'll keep an eye on that. It's, uh, it was still a, a pretty good backdoor back in the day. I think it was single UDP packet with command injection allows you to install stuff on a Netis router. Right. Yeah, yeah. it was, it was quite a bug. Interesting that, that this popped up after so long. I mean, I, I, I don't remember how far back we originally yeah. talked about this, but it was a while back. It was. The original vulnerability against those Netis routers I'm pretty sure it had a patch associated with them. So it'd be interesting to sort of keep a track on where that scanning ends up going. It could just be 
somebody looking at something because they weren't aware of it, or um, maybe there's something else brewing out there. I think you know that will be revealed. So we're taking a look at a, a port that used to be on the top 10 and has since fallen off, port 1433 TCP, which was MS SQL. Uh, and back in the beginning of December of last year, we saw a significant increase um, in the number of sources scanning. And in the last couple of days, it's fallen off to uh, about where it was right before it started scanning. So it looks like there was a single botnet um, behind all of this. Uh, the way that it, it falls off so rapidly, I, I mm. have a hard time believing it was anything else but a single coordinated group of scanners. Um, the drop-off took about three days to complete, though, which is interesting. So maybe there's some, some sort of lag in the C2, or maybe these are boxes that, for whatever reason, just took forever to get the commands from the C2. Um, but, yeah, whoever was interested seems to no longer be interested. Mm. So, you know, we're speculating as to why that is. Uh, but I think that there was a single botnet that has been retasked to some other scanning operation, uh, which we haven't identified yet. Always taking a look at port 23 TCP is Telnet. Scan flows are slowly trending upwards in the last 30 days, um, but not a huge a lot of, of moving and shaking there. Uh, port 5900 did make it to the top 10 this week in terms of scan sources, and you can see a significant amount of, uh, it's gotten pretty spiky. Um, that looks like that same daily pattern that we've seen before um, in other places like SMB. So I imagine these are a bunch of, of Windows machines that are being power cycled daily, wherever they happen to be. Uh, and most of the sources are in Australia and India for this one. I'm not sure what the significance of that is, uh, but it is interesting. Uh, port 8080, uh, I said we'd take a closer look at it, and then here we have a 365-day view of it. Um, in the last couple of months, it really hasn't changed terribly much, but I wanted to know when did we actually start really seeing scanning on this port? Turns out that was in April of 2018, actually more, more towards May of 2018, and we saw a huge spike in that. And it turns out that this is actually a pretty common bug in a couple of Netgear routers. Uh, the Reaper botnet, a Wicked botnet are among the botnets that scan for this vulnerability. Um, so uh, that's my explanation for it, especially given the size of Reaper. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably what we're seeing here. Yep. And that's it for the internet weather. Thanks, awesome. Matt. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.